sure enough, uh, we do have a Facebook page. And uh, sure enough, uh, Dale is actually uh, about to create a web page for us. Um, and so uh, uh, the reason I'm bringing this all up is not to re regurgitate what was said, but to say that uh, starting today, uh, what, what I'll be saying from the front will be recorded, which uh, strikes fear in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I think, hey, Dan, can we put that on Facebook? I think we could, eh? yeah. So we'll be posting it on Facebook. Um, and then when we have a website, we'll be posting it on, on there. So that'll help if you can't make it to church. or And I know there's people that can't make it to church. So um, hopefully they'll, uh, yeah, and nobody will, <laughs> from the IRS and the states will come and find you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you can actually roll your eyes at home instead of here. That's why I love you so much. <laughs> well, Krista, today you'll find out why um, why we have an affinity, I think. Um, because it sounds like we've had similar stories. Um, I can't ask you guys to come up here and share from your hearts your testimony if I don't participate myself, and so that's what I'm doing today. I'm bringing you uh, a bit of an insight into my story, and uh, I want to start with uh, what I would consider my defining moment, a defining night, if you will. Um, probably better still, it would probably be a defining encounter that I had, and this spring, uh, it will uh, probably be 30, yeah, it'll be, this spring it'll be 33 years since that encounter, that defining moment, that spring of 1984. Um, I found myself in Strong Memorial Hospital, which is in Rochester, New York, on the psychiatric wing. I've been there for five weeks, uh, diagnosed with clinical depression. And um, when I checked in, they took all my blades away for shaving and uh, checked my baggage, and they made sure I didn't have anything there that uh, I could kill myself with. I spent my days um, doing uh, things that uh, people do on psych wings, uh, little group encounters, and um, I refused to do the uh, ceramics, so they gave me a ball and I went to the gym and shot baskets instead, um, and um, I had crazy, crazy, crazy neighbors who lived around me. It's a night that I will never forget, though, that I want to share with you. Um, I can identify with Jacob, and if you know the Bible, you'll, you'll remember the story of Jacob. Jacob was the younger son who uh, was a schemer, and he uh, ripped off his brother's birthright. Um, and he also deceived his father into giving him his blessing. And for that, Jacob uh, had to split town because he pulled a fast one on everybody and he wasn't very popular. And so he went away to his uncle Laban in Haran. On his way back after 20 years, he had an encounter with God 
which has been likened to, and which he likened it to, and the Moses who wrote this likened it to a wrestling match. He wrestled with God through the night. In the end, he um, was a different man than the man who started that night. Um, and he actually, for the rest of his life, had a physical uh, evidence of that wrestling match, which was God's reminder to him of that wrestling match where he wrestled God. And he had a limp the rest of his life after that match with God. So how did I end up in Rochester, New York, in a psychiatric way? Um, I'll take you back five months prior to that. Um, and uh, it was uh, the first day of school after Christmas vacation. The teachers in the crowd will recognize that that is not your best day. <laughs> You've had uh, two day, two weeks off, and you know you're you, you're you're thrown right back into it. And, and usually, if you're in a semester system, you've got like a few weeks to get your kids ready for the exams, and it's an intense time. And uh, I was a first year teacher. Uh, Colleen and I were married that summer, so it was my first year of marriage, and we both were blessed of God to get two full-time teaching jobs in the Durham District School Board, which is just outside of uh, Toronto, in the Oshawa area. And uh, we, uh, yeah, life was perfect. We had it all set. Everything was going right for us. We, we got uh, married. We got our jobs. We were living in this idyllic little town, actually up on Lake, um, uh, oh, I forget the lake that Barry's on. What is it, Dale? Barry's on Lake... Simcoe, on Lake Simcoe. We were on the opposite side in a little town called Beaverton, the sweetest little town you can imagine. We had a brand new apartment above the grocery store. Life was good. Um, I remember that first day of school after Christmas vacation, though. I, I drove home. Uh, I should not have even survived my drive home because I was in crisis. I was weeping. I mean, I was sobbing uncontrollably, like full body sobbing behind the wheel. And I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I could never go back to that school. Um, and so I got home and I talked to Colleen after she got home from work. And what happened was um, my board was good to me and they gave me a long-term disability and I started seeing Christian counselors and secular counselors and trying all kinds of drugs. And I had a brother-in-law uh, at the time who was um, a resident at Strong Memorial Hospital in neurology, and he had uh, connections. And so he got me into psych wing of Strong Memorial Hospital, which was a very fine university uh, school, uh, hospital, uh, part of University of Rochester, down in Rochester, New York. And I got there. and. And that's where I, I spent five, actually probably six weeks, but uh, my night's encounter, my encounter with God, my wrestling match with God happened probably about five and a half weeks into that. How did I end up getting into crisis? <laughs> what brings a guy to that point where he's sobbing, leaving work, knowing that he can never return because... He is so gripped by fear. He is so 
paralyzed by anxiety that he knows he can never go back there. He, he would give up anything never to return to that place. Um, I, I, if you tell me you're a perfectionist, you're not, I don't, I, I'm not impressed. So don't ever tell me you're a perfectionist. Because because I was a perfectionist, I ended up in a psych wing. Being a perfectionist is not a good thing. So if you think it is, it's, it's not, it's bad. Alright? And I was a perfectionist. Somehow I grew up a perfectionist. I believed that my value and worth in this world was contingent upon my ability to deliver, to deliver on things, uh, to do stuff, to be able to produce stuff. And so I was a perfectionist. It served me well in regard to success. I was highly, highly successful as a perfectionist. Um, and I say these things not to boast, but just to tell you, as the Apostle Paul once said, I consider this all rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. But my accomplishments were pretty significant for, for a kid, I thought. You know, I was a straight-A straight a student. Um, I was an outstanding athlete. And I, you know, I know it's hard to imagine. But I was, for one day. Um, when I played a sport, I was the most valuable player. Uh, when I was the counselor at camp, I was the counselor of the year. When I was, later on, teacher, I was teacher of the year. <laughs> I had to be of the year. <laughs> because that's what you aim for as a perfectionist. You aim for perfection. And it takes its toll. And my first year of teaching took its toll. Uh, anybody will tell you, any psychiatrist will tell you that even too much of the good stuff can make you depressed. And so here we were, straight out of teacher's college, newly married, both had full-time jobs, both living in this beautiful town that we loved, um, you know, uh, just everything was great. <laughs> everything was really good. And so we, um, I, um, I was in, a, in an idyllic situation, but um, I was given what's called, in the teacher's terms, a dog's breakfast of a, of a schedule which they do to first-year teachers. You've got to kind of prove yourself, and, and nobody else will teach those courses, so you may as well take, you give them to the first-year guys because you know they'll work their butts off to make it happen, even though it's, you know, and I was teaching in the history department, the business department, and the phys ed department. And, uh, and, and, and you know what? I could do it, but I, I couldn't do it to my standard. I could not achieve my standard. I was a perfectionist, and I needed to be perfect. I needed my kids to come into a class and be enthralled by me. I needed all of my curriculum to be stellar. I needed everything that I produced to be perfect. 
And because of, you know, the many changes in my life, and because of the challenge of the job to try to become, you know, perfect in a, an imperfect situation, uh, it started to take its toll on me. And um, I don't get me wrong, I was exceptional as a first-year teacher. My superintendent, who had been a superintendent for 30 years, said, I have never seen as good a teacher as you, Tim. They, superintendents used to do the evaluations of you in those days. And he came, I was scared to death. He said, I've never seen someone as good as you. And then the principal started to use my tests to teach the older teachers how to write a good test. Right. So I was being highly successful. I was coaching a team. I was into it. The kids liked me. I liked the kids. But, but remember, on the first day back after Christmas, I could not return to that school. It's because I was perfectionist. And because I couldn't reach my standards, I started to eat myself alive. Right? I started to concede to the voice that you are unlovable. You are not good enough. You have to prove your worth. And so what you do is you start to work harder. And you're getting weaker and you work harder. And the voice gets louder in your head. See? That test wasn't as good as the test that your principal showing to other people. Hopefully nobody's going to see that test that you just wrote because it's not as good as it should be. Or that class was a throwaway class. You know it was a throwaway class. Why did you do that, Tim? And so there was a record going in my head and it began louder and louder and louder and it was condemning me and it was putting me down. It was telling me, telling me, you better watch out, Tim, because they're going to find out what a fraud you are. Because you're not as good. You know you're not as good as what you've made out to be. You're fraudulent. And so I started to get depressed and started the cold sweats. Woke up at the internationally known time in the morning at 5 a.m. for depressed people. Sweating, my heart beating. This is my first year of teaching. This is my first year with my dear wife, Colleen, who is a saint. You can call her Saint Colleen from now on. <laughs> now that you know that she stood by me through this. Now that you know that she drove every weekend from Beaverton, Ontario to Rochester to New York to be with me while I was in the psych wing. Um, so that, that's how I got depressed. Uh, that's how I got into that place where I had to leave the first day of school and never come back. And to believe me, it was like years later that I literally, even though I was healthy and well, it took me, like the person that's afraid of the elevator, it was the same thing of me going back to that school one day. It took all the courage I could mount, stir together to walk in the front door of that school. And I left as a success. The kids were like, where'd Mr. Edwards go, man? That guy's awesome. He's doing so well. And the teachers are like, well, where'd that, that, you know, teachers resent me, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to be shown the tests of some first-year teacher <laughs> and say, you should do this. Uh, you know, 
But it was like it was a surprise when I disappeared off the face of the earth, and then they found, well, he's not coming back. So let me take you back then to um, that night, that, that night that was the defining moment uh, of my life. Um, once I was off on long-term disability, as I said, I went to counselors and all that and did a lot of things. Um, but then I was fortunate to get into Strong Memorial Hospital under the care of two doctors. And it was kind of funny, funny how you, you learn things about psychiatry stuff. They had a, there was a good cop and a bad cop. One counselor was just the nicest guy. You know, he really cared about me, and I could just pour out my, myself to him. And the other guy was like military, core, really cold. He just come in and said, oh, I can see you're not doing any better. Let's adjust your medication. And he was just cold as ice. Found out later that they were they they did that. It was their gig. That's how they did things, uh, and it worked for them. So let me take you back uh, to that night. I'm I'm laying in I'm laying in bed, going to bed. You know, full of you know. I mean, I'm a disaster, right? Like when you consider what I when you consider what I aspire to be, and where I found myself. I was, I was, uh, I was a failure, right? I was an absolute abysmal failure. I couldn't do a thing. Couldn't do a thing. I mean, to write my own name was pretty hard work because I was just at the end of the rope kind of thing. So I'll take you back to that night. Um, what I've described to you so far isn't unique. Okay, so I, I don't want you to think that, you know, oh, wow, Tim's story is unique. It's not unique at all, actually. There's people all over the world, millions of people, have gotten into a trap of dysfunctional thinking that has contributed to their clinical depression. Um, and unfortunately, many of them kill themselves as a result of it. Um, but what's maybe a little bit less common is that I was a person of faith. Now that's weird. <laughs> Think about that. Think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the antithesis, it is the opposite of the way I was thinking. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there's nothing you can do. Yeah, you are a sinner. There's nothing you can do to, to earn my love. There's nothing that you can do to prove yourself to me. I just love you. Period. No conditions. No levels. No bars. I just love you. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I love you so much, I died to address that issue that you've got with sin. You know, somebody had to pay the penalty, and I chose to do it because I love you that much. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Compare that to the way I was thinking. I have to prove my worth. And so what happened was, in my faith in relation to this situation that I was going through emotionally, was that I warped my religion. I warped my faith. I made it fit the mold of my dysfunctional thinking. 
And so I characterize God as a hard-to-please master. I saw God not as a loving God who loved me and accepted me. I just saw him as a guy who knew my innermost thoughts and knew what a failure I was. And wanted me to try to prove my worth to him. So you see, my dysfunctional thinking won the day. It warped even truth. So that my truth had to fit into the dysfunction of my thinking. So even though I intellectually knew, having grown up in the church and having even uh, served uh, as a Christian worker in different ways, different capacities, having told kids at the age of 16, I would tell kids at camp that Jesus loved them unconditionally. I knew it here, but my reality was not the same. I didn't believe it for myself, and therefore I didn't really believe it. And so, I, um, I, was, faced, I was faced that night, that moment, that encounter, that wrestling with God night that I had. I was faced with a choice. Um, God was good enough to confront me. I'd been in the hospital about five and a half weeks. Things weren't going well. And I had to make a choice. God gave me a choice. He says, He said to me, in no uncertain terms, not a verbal, you know, like an audible voice, but I this was what I was struggling with. This was the wrestle I was having in that bed in the psych wing through the wee hours of the morning. God was saying, you can choose to try to prove your value through your human effort and, and, and continue to live with the constant fear of failure, the feelings of guilt that you haven't been good enough, the, 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 the incredible pressure that you feel. You can choose that or Tim, you can choose to leave that life and trust that I love you regardless. Trust that I love you regardless. Now that's trust. Trust is not being convinced. <laughs> trust is, I'm going to give this a go. He said, you can leave that life and trust that I love you regardless of your faults, your inadequacies, and your failures. And accept that there is nothing that you can do to win my favor. You can trust that relying exclusively on my acceptance of you is all that you need <coughs> to live your life. You can get off the hamster wheel the treadmill of constantly trying to impress others for acceptance and, and know that my acceptance is all that matters. I know you're a failure. I know the thoughts you've thought. I know what you've done. I get it. But I love you. And that should be all that matters to you, Tim. And so I made a decision that night. And it was like a wrestling match. I was, I don't know, what was it, 25, I guess. Uh, I'd lived my whole life with this dysfunctional thinking. 
Even the truth had been warped according to match with my thinking. And so um, it was a fight. I fought God that night. I fought God tooth and nail. <laughs> but then I, 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 just, I, just, I just decided, I, I just decided, okay, I give uncle. Um, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna trust. I'm just gonna step out in faith, if you will. I hate that language so much. But anyways, I'm just gonna sort of do it. I remember waking up the next morning, and it was like all night that I struggled. So I must have just been so exhausted at the end, I finally, you know, fell off to sleep. And I can, but I can remember waking up the next morning. And I remember, without a shadow of a doubt, being free for the first time in my life. I, I, it felt like a thousand weights of the world <laughs> had been taken off my shoulders. And I remember, without an iota of doubt, that God loved me. And quite frankly, there was no way I could prove to him at that point that I was worthy of his love. And so, just like for Jacob, that night defined my life. And it has changed everything. Uh, with God, instead of trying to prove my worth to him all the time, or being afraid of him. I just started from that moment really falling in love with him because he loved me so much and he gave me such a wonderful gift of freedom. Uh, I could never before that moment say that I loved God, even though I'd been, you know, camp counselor, Christian camp, telling kids about God and how much he loves you. Uh, I could not say that he, I loved God. Actually, I quite resented God because he was the guy up in the sky who knew my inner thoughts and knew what a mess I was and knew how much I had. And I figured he wanted me to get cleaned up. But from then on with my relationship with God, I just loved him. I, I've, 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 I love God <laughs> with all my heart. He set me free. You know, I was blind and now I see. You know? I was in prison and now I'm free. Uh, like I, I was dead, and now I'm alive. Like, so what's not to love about that? With others, um, my relationship to others was always contingent on myself. I was an incredibly, even though people would say that I was, a, oh, the most kind, compassionate, uh, you know, caring individual, I really wasn't. I was doing that for myself. <laughs> I wanted them to think that I was kind, compassionate, and loving, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I, I get no credit for that. I was all of those things because I was afraid that they would understand that I wasn't any of those things. So, that really changes your perspective on people. Now, with people, I'm just like, I'm okay with God. Can I make your life better? I want to just love on you because, like, I've been loved. I want to love on you. And I love it. It's freedom. 
you know, I can just love on people without worrying about what they're thinking about me and so on and so forth. I just can just love them freely. And, and, and so with others, it's changed me entirely. And then with what I do with a life and career and all that sort of stuff, you know, God has given me a lot of gifts. I acknowledge that. Um, and actually, my perfectionism really honed those gifts, quite frankly. <laughs> the, 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 the silver lining, I guess, is that, you know, my perfectionism honed those gifts that God had given to me. Um, but now my, my interest is that I just want to do whatever I can do to honor God and to sort of praise Him and, and give back to Him. And so it's, it's not at all anymore a career or a life that's about, you know, getting things for myself. I, I am sufficient. I have everything I need because I have the love of God. And so I am a new man. Um, I do want you to know that I am not a perfect man, <laughs> as if you didn't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just thought I had to say. Um, I still, I still fight. You know that that was the first twenty-five years of my life. So I still fight the old man. The old man still crops up and says, and, and guilts me and says, "You need to do this so that you know." that you're worthy and valuable and a good person and stuff like that. So I still, I, I still get that. I still take uh, antidepressants every day and probably will for the rest of my life because um, I physiologically have a problem <laughs> that uh, I, I get out of, out of my, my chemistry gets out of whack if it's not checked with another uh, chemistry. And so I'm thankful for the medical profession that they give me that. And um, I'm thankful that Colleen has a health plan that pays for it, <laughs> by and large. <laughs> um, and I still take my eyes off Jesus, and I still you know, have times of depression, and I still have times of anxiety. But I have such a, such a bedrock, such a, a touchstone to go back to when I go back to that night, that, that nothing face, nothing will ever phase me or throw me off anymore. I, I, there is no danger of being sucked back into that. I mean, why would I, right? It's hell. <laughs> I don't want to go there. And so I'm, I'm a happy, happy camper. And, and uh, though life's not perfect and I'm not perfect, certainly I'm a, I'm a changed man. So I know we got to eat, uh, but are there any questions for Tim? I'd be happy to um, answer. If you had any any, any questions about my experience? The thing that's great is um, the last few years, because Bella um, suffers from borderline personality disorder, um, you were very adamant in, I mean, we're, you know, we're a close little group here, and, you know, it wasn't easy for you to get up and talk, and, you know, myself either, but it's so important. It's it's at the top of mine and Bella's list to, for people to be able to sit in a coffee shop and have coffee and say just as easily, oh, so I have diabetes. Right. Just as easily to say, oh my gosh, they finally figured it out I'm bipolar or I'm, you know, I have clinical depression or anxiety. People say it and they're still, they still shy away. They're like, 
oh, yeah. there's some, something terribly wrong with that person. There's not, like, there's not. We, and, and that doesn't help us at all either. You know, it's one more thing that we have to um, say, oh, there's something else that's wrong with me. Um, but just to acknowledge, like, yeah. if there's anybody sitting here and, and, and hearing the story and thinking, hmm, like, I wonder why we felt that way or just knowledge. Everybody needs to learn that there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with the saying that we suffer from it. Um, we're human, and for some reason, we are feeling it more than others have it, and uh, it just needs to be talked about more. Yeah, the Apostle Paul, like, Scripture has meant a lot more to me since Apostle Paul was, was always was fighting with God, too, and he said, please take this thorn away from me. We don't know what the thorn was, exactly. But I see depression as my thorn. Because Paul finally came to the conclusion, uh, well, he didn't. God made the conclusion for him. And he said to him, uh, Paul, I'm not going to take that thorn away from you. My grace is sufficient for you. My favorite words. My grace is sufficient for you. You get the thorn, buddy. But the thorn is going to keep you in at the feet of my grace. Yeah. You're going to be so dependent on me. And I am. Yeah, so that's... Yeah, and that's why we do these things on Fellowship Sunday, people sharing. Uh, it's just that we need to... It's good for us to know each other and uh, know what we're dealing with and give glory to God for the things that He's accomplished in our lives and, and to, on, on, on the other hand, be willing to pray and support people when they're struggling. Yes, Rosie? I think you're the best minister ever. <laughs> Thanks, Rosie! She only says that because I've been with donuts. I know you can Somebody else had their hand up over here. I didn't want to cut anybody off. Sorry, I thought I saw a hand over there. It's probably just Earl saying, hey man, can we go eat? So we will pray and uh, pray for our meal and then we'll go down and, and get things ready. Lord, thank you for this time. Uh, it's, been, it's been nice being in your house today together. And I thank you, Lord, for uh, just uh, how you are working amongst us and you're drawing us together and you're helping us to help each other. And I thank you for that. And uh, thank you for just this experience that we've had through the, the worship and prayer and participating in the communion, all of these things. So, Lord, uh, now as we continue to worship through uh, just being together and, uh, and uh, worship and fellowshipping as we should, uh, I pray, Lord, that you bless our time uh, together downstairs and bless this food to our, our bodies and that you strengthen us with it. In Jesus' name. Amen.